We're going to read from God's Word, and if you would just like to open up your Bibles, wherever they, um, in whatever format that might be, our first reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 79, and the second reading comes from Luke 2, verses 47 to 49, and they're coming from the NIV version. So Luke 1, 67 to 79, it's an entitled Zachariah's Song. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets a long time ago. Salvation from our enemies and from our hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him in all our days. And you, my child, will be called the prophet of the Most High for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven, to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into a path of peace. So far the first reading, and then the second reading. Comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 47 to 49. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. I'd like to invite Bill to come up. Um, Bill Bosker is part of our church, has been for a while, but he's also a retired minister and um, it's a great privilege that we can have you, Bill, this morning to come up and preach God's word. So blessings to you, Bill. Well, good morning, church. Uh, I just wanted to um, add to John's words about the gift during the week of those donuts. I'm actually not a very keen donut eater, uh, but... When this box came, it uh, totally changed me. So thank you, Peyton. Thank you, Phil. And for all the rest of the crowd who enjoyed them, we, uh, we really thank you for that really considerate uh, gesture. We are going to be looking at Luke's Gospel. It's a one-off because we're in that uniquely reformed series. And in order to um, set the context for this, I, I just wanted to share with you some of my reflection on the whole gospel and why the text that we're having today uh, fits into what I think Luke has been trying to stress. So I'd like to set the context with a few words about Luke, the gospel of Luke. If you were given the task of being the ruler of the world, what sort of people would you gather around you to start to implement your rule? Would it be people of influence and power and wealth? People who were great communicators, who were media savvy? People who were great administrators and who quickly could organise a, a government administration? 
Is that who you choose? Well, Luke is a medical doctor. He's well-researched. And he shows us how Jesus goes about his task as king and as lord and about doing his father's business. And Luke focuses on Jesus' interaction with people and he zooms in on Jesus' concern for people who are sick, who are poor, and the women and the children who were the underclass in his day. And in doing this, Luke's, Luke helps us see Jesus' compassion and his power over everything. It's the people whom the world sees as weak that Jesus reveals himself to and builds his kingdom around. The end of Luke's Gospel has a very interesting ending as it describes Jesus' ascension from the Mount of Olives. And I've often asked myself, which mountain did Jesus ascend from? And he ascended from the Mount of Olives, but what is striking about that is the Mount of Olives is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. It's the place where Jesus was really um, reflecting and agonising over going to the cross. And that mountain happens to be the mountain from which he ascended into heaven to announce that his mission on earth was accomplished. So Luke finishes his gospel with these words. They worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they stayed continually at the temple praising God. Now that ending of Luke has a remarkable similarity to the ending of our passage in Luke 7. And I believe that Luke did that intentionally. It's like the Holy Spirit is underlining from the beginning of his gospel to the end what was said through Zechariah in the words that John just read in Luke 1.68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because in Christ he has redeemed his people. Now our text highlights that truth and we do well to see it. Let me pray before I read the passage. Father God in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who communicates your amazing love in the Lord Jesus Christ in such concrete and memorable ways. Our prayer is that as we uh, uncover this text and dig deep into it, that your Holy Spirit would help us to see Jesus, to love him and to want to serve him. He is the Lord of life. Help us to see him more clearly this morning, I pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you've got your Bibles open, uh, please turn to our text uh, in chapter 7, and we're looking at verses 11 to 17. Luke 7, verses 11 to 17. Soon afterward, and the soon afterward refers back to uh, what had just happened in Capernaum, and the raising of the centurion's servant, soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain. And his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, 
don't cry. And then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. And the dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Well, no one needs to be told that a funeral is a sad event. A person who was once living now lies cold and still in a coffin or in biblical times on a stretcher. The pain of death is felt by us who remain. We cannot suppress our grief. A loved one has departed. But at the same time, if it's a Christian funeral, we are confronted with and comforted by the gospel. In our text, we see that comfort in the compassion of Christ. Here, God visits the people of Nain in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what did the people see? They saw his compassion. God has come to help his people, the text says in verse 16. And that news of Jesus spread throughout Judea and to the whole surrounding country, and it's been spreading until it even reached us here in Scoresby. Let's see how God's compassion is revealed in Christ. We want to look at it in three ways. The compassion of Christ is the reason for our hope. Secondly, we'll look at how far our Lord's compassion goes. And thirdly, we'll look at the triumph of Christ's compassion. So the compassion of Christ is the reason for our hope. To appreciate our Lord's compassion for this widow, bereaved of her only son, we need to understand some of the background and then transport ourselves into this event. Now Luke, who's a medical doctor, he's always got eyes for detail, he says Jesus went into a town called Nain. Now, if you look at your scripture, you'll see in verse 1 of chapter 7 that he entered Capernaum. So that's entering that town. But here Luke says, not he went to a town, he went to Nain, he went to a town called Nain. Now on the map, I just want to show you where that is. In the left-hand side of your screen, you'll see the square. It's in the north of Israel, in the area of Galilee. And then we can zoom into Galilee on the right-hand side of the screen. And you'll see Capernaum at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And then you work your way around the lake and a little bit inland and you'll come down the bottom of the orange section to the town of Nain. So Luke is actually drawing attention to the town called Nain. Why does he do that? We need to explore that. Well, the word Nain means a pleasant or a beautiful spot. And if you see the geography of the place, it's a town 
elevated on a hill, looking across the plains to forest-covered mountains, and in the distance, you can even see snow-covered Mount Hermon. So, you can describe Nain as a really great piece of real estate. A beautiful place, that's why it's called Nain. Luke is sort of telling us that Nain is a type of paradise. This little paradise, though, has just lost one of its sons. And death reminds us of that first paradise where all its beauty was shattered by sin and the result was death and paradise lost. So let's zoom into this event. Let's go to this town of Nain. The funeral procession is actually heading north, so out of the city to the boundary where the cemetery is. And I want you to just see this slide of um, how that would have looked like in those days. So instead of a coffin as we have today, a sealed coffin, then it was an open stretcher and being carried just like uh, the slide shows there. So here is a woman already devastated by her loss of her husband. That's what the text tells us. And then such a woman losing her husband then becomes dependent on her son for her well-being and her upkeep. But now her only son has also died. Overwhelmed by sorrow, her only hope lies dead on a stretcher. And his arms are across his chest and wrapped in a burial cloth full of grief and a very sad sight. But I want you to think about some other things that come out of the text and the culture. And that is that it was common for people then to think, and some people still do today, that great suffering comes because of great sin. First, the woman's lost her husband. Now she's lost her son. What has this woman done? You can feel the stigma, as people may have whispered that. But there was also a custom in Galilee, in the north of Israel, that required a woman to head a funeral possession because it's a woman who introduced death into the world. So you can imagine the culture, you can imagine the situation. Here she is, she's stooped over, her eyes are flooded with tears, and people who met the procession would join the crowd according to prevailing custom. Because the law in Israel said, weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. And so Luke tells us in verse 12 that by now a large crowd from the town was with her. But now look, but now look, who's coming down the road from the opposite direction? There's another crowd and this crowd is coming southwards from Capernaum. And they had just witnessed the miraculous healing of the centurion's servant who was sick and about to die. And at the head of this crowd coming south walks the Lord Jesus and his disciples and they are triumphant and they are victorious. The centurion's servant was saved from certain death. So what's going to happen now? As these two crowds meet along that narrow road on the way to Nain Cemetery. Will Jesus honour 
the prevailing custom by giving way to the procession and join the mourners to the graveside. Well, dear friends, what this text shows us and what I want you to see is the symbolism in these two crowds. One crowd is led by Jesus, the Prince of Life, and the other is led by Satan, the Prince of Death, proudly displaying his power in the symbol of the corpse. What will Jesus do? Will the Prince of Life give way to the Prince of Death? And so Luke here is writing a researched account of the life and ministry of Jesus. That's what his whole gospel's about. And in the opening chapter, as we read from the Song of Zechariah, God prophesied that the Most High would walk among us to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the path of peace. So here is Jesus going about his Father's work Forgiving sins, confronting death, doing his father's business. So let's go back to the crowd. What's going to happen as these two crowds meet? Jesus does not step aside and let the funeral procession through, though that might have been the polite thing to do. No, he stands in the middle of the road. It's life meeting death. And the procession stops. Now between these two crowds, imagine them. Between these two crowds stands the widow. She's engulfed by sorrow and her tear-filled eyes don't even recognise Jesus. But he recognises her. From a distance, her life was an open book to Jesus. Just as our lives are an open book to him. Do you ever think in those terms of your life being an open book to Jesus? And Jesus sees her deep sadness and our Lord is filled with compassion. The deepness of his compassion is expressed in the language because that word compassion that Luke uses is one which churns your stomach and wrenches your heart. And that's what was happening in Jesus. That's how strong the word is. So what did Jesus see that made him feel like this? He saw the devastating consequences of sin. He saw our sin that has brought death upon ourselves. He saw Satan bringing devastation on people. And he saw Satan arrogantly displaying his trophy of death. And that's what made our Lord's heart go out to her. In her sorrow, in her helplessness, he gently says, Do not weep. You can stop your crying. Verse 13. Well, dear friends, do you know that that's exactly how Jesus finds us? Before we know Jesus, we are a sorry sight. We might not see it ourselves. But he does, and he has compassion on us. And the fact that he is prepared to stop us in our tracks and grab our attention is to comfort us and deliver us and give us true hope. The Prince of Life, who loves to shine light into darkness, 
Luke 1 verse 79 says, In the shadow of death he gives life. So that's what Jesus does when he addresses this widow. Do not weep and no empty words. Jesus can say that because he can take away the cause of the weeping. His words carry power. As I was reflecting this past week on this passage and seeing what's directly in front of it, the centurion situation, it's interesting that Jesus marvels at the centurion's faith. I've not seen such faith in all of Israel, Jesus said. And when we come to our text, it's interesting that there's nothing said about the widow's faith. And I was just thinking, why? Why? And I think the answer is that in this context, it's all about Jesus. It's all about life confronting death. And that's where the focus of Luke and Holy Spirit is. So Jesus' words carry power. Today, he's going to come to her aid, and today, he's going to deliver both a mother and her son. And Luke tells us this so that we might remember that the Lord Jesus came to help us too. The Son of God has come to give us life, and his compassion is the reason for our hope. Let's see how far our Lord's compassion goes as a second point. On first reading, you might say that it's Jesus' compassion that raises the widow's son from the dead. But is that what the text says? Have a look at verse 14 with me. Then he went up and touched the bier they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. Can you see what's happening in our text? Jesus' heart goes out to the widow and he says to her, don't cry, stop your crying. And between them is the body of her dead son. And then Jesus touches the bier, he touches the coffin and the procession suddenly comes to a halt. Again, Luke's detail here is important. How does touching the bier show us Jesus' compassion? Well, every Jew knows that any person who touches a dead body or anything that is in contact with that corpse, anybody who touches that, makes themselves ceremonially unclean and polluted. Numbers 19 verses 11 to 13 says that a ceremonially unclean person who does not clean himself according to rigorous purification washings is to be cut off from the community. That means losing your place in God's community, being isolated from God's presence and carrying the curse of death. That's what Jesus did when he touched the coffin. He showed the depth of his compassion. He knowingly and willingly and deliberately made himself unclean. With that touch, Jesus declared, that he was willing to bear the curse of our sin leading to death. In other words, in touching the bier, Jesus committed himself to the cross. He was symbolically offering to give his life for the life of the widow's son 
and for anybody who is separated from God because of our sin. So those words, don't cry, and that act of touching the coffin were very costly for our Lord. They would cost him his life. It was his commitment to suffer a painful death on the cross and endure separation from God on our behalf. That's how far Christ's compassion goes for humanity. It's what Zechariah prophesied when he was filled with the Holy Spirit in that Luke 1 reading, verse 68. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. Indeed, God has come to redeem his people. And here he is in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And see how the Holy Spirit makes that connection by inspiring Luke to record the crowd's reaction in verse 16. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. Let's look in the third place at the triumph of Christ's compassion. If touching the coffin committed Jesus to the cross, look how his words bring life. Young man, I say to you, get up. Can you imagine this scene with me? As the people stopped and saw what Jesus was doing, they must have wondered what is going to happen. And then they hear Jesus address a dead corpse. The sheer power of his words. It's like a glimpse of creation coming into the town of Nain. A little bit of paradise is being restored. Look what verse 15 says. The dead man sat up and began to talk. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Wow. You have to imagine this. This young man has been dead probably for at least 24 hours. And rigor mortis would have set in and here at Jesus words he immediately sits up and begins to talk imagine what he might have said I was thinking about it he might have said hey mum where have you been oh where have I been what's all this fuss about he might have said but then I, I thought ah oh, no he would look into the face of Jesus and I, he wouldn't be able to keep his eyes off Jesus. See, the mother was given back her son and Jesus, and the mother had given up on her son. She had given him up and Jesus gives him back to her. It's a complete restoration. It's a new life. It's a living, breathing, smiling son back in his mother's arms. And that is the triumph of Christ's compassion, a brand new life. Now in raising this young man to life, Jesus gives us a picture of what his death on the cross will do. It's meant to give us a firm assurance, an unshakable picture of this new life in Christ. Eternal life 
that we can receive from Jesus through faith by looking to him to save us. Those eyes of the young man looking into Jesus' face. Think about that. Have you looked into the face of Jesus? What do you see? And if you haven't done it yet, I urge you today, look, look into his face, look into his eyes. Look in faith to him and receive the forgiveness of sins and a new life and then be filled with awe and gratitude. God has come to help us. God has come to help you. God has come to help me. Thank you, Jesus. But there's even more to this event. Complete restoration, now and for eternity. That's the full triumph of Christ's compassion. Because this, this, this new life speaks of the last day and the resurrection when Jesus comes back in glory. And by his powerful word, graves will be opened and the dead will rise and our bodies and souls will be reunited. And those who look to Jesus in faith will be able to live with him forever. But those who have scorned Jesus, who refuse to believe that he's God's answer to our sin problem, will depart and spend eternity in hopelessness and frustration. As Pastor Andrew preached last week, hell is real. So don't refuse Jesus. Don't refuse him now. Don't refuse him ever. As we conclude the message this morning, we've seen how Jesus' compassion is our hope. We've seen how far his compassion goes all the way to the cross. We've seen the triumph of his compassion in raising us to a new life and guaranteeing our resurrection to eternal life. Now I want you to go back into the scene of the text. Come with me back to Nain. Let's go back to that road. Let's go back to the crowds. In giving back her son, Jesus had stopped the funeral procession in its tracks. But see what's happening now. The two crowds become one. And they head back into the town of Nain. They're going to declare that this beautiful place, Nain, that had lost one of its sons, now has a son restored. It's like a touch of paradise restored. And you can imagine how the widow and her son now would be telling this good news to the people back in Nain. And now they also had a crowd of witnesses who were also confirmed this miracle. And verse 16 says, they were all filled with awe and praise God. They said, God has come to help his people. You see, they couldn't keep this good news to themselves. Verse 17 says, this news about Jesus spread throughout <laughs> Judea and through the whole country. And through the written word, through the preached word, of God, this news has also reached us in the great Southland. A few questions to think about. Do you belong 
to that crowd of believers who follow Jesus. And if you do, never forget in whose company we travel. This crowd, we're never alone. We have our fellow believers in Christ to encourage us. We have Jesus walking with us. And remember in which direction we're walking. We're walking to Nain. And that's a little symbol of paradise. We're walking to paradise with Jesus. And we can be full of joy because God has come to help us. We've seen, we've experienced the compassion of Christ. So are we going to tell the people of Scoresby and the people in the city of Knox the good news as well? How can we not tell them? And when we have Christ's compassion alive in us, we can point people to him. And that's how we give them the best hope. Jesus has the power to restore us to God and to give us eternal life. But notice that his work doesn't stop at the cross. The grave is empty. He's a risen king. He ascended into heaven. And from there, Jesus still continues to show his compassion for us. He's our high priest there. He's praying for us. He's covering us with his blood sacrifice. And he's still working and he's still speaking. He's still moving through his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And so we'll wait for our bodies to be raised up incorruptible when Christ returns to judge the world. And meanwhile, we live in this assurance that we belong to him. We see him through the eyes of faith. Romans 8 says, And nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Praise be to the name of Jesus. Amen. I'd like to lead you in prayer and then we're going to sing a song about praising the name of Jesus. Father God in heaven, Holy Spirit of Christ, we thank you, Lord Jesus, that in this text, if we sang as we sang this morning, I want to see Jesus. Well, this text has helped us see Jesus. We see his eyes we see his compassion, we feel his warm embrace, and we know that he's the giver of life. Lord God, thank you for honouring the promise from the prophets of old that the Most High would come to this earth and you have in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue us, to give us life everlasting. We pray, Lord, that you will help us to share this good news. May it bubble up in us so much that we want to talk to other people about Jesus. And if that's a result of this message this morning, we praise your name that you might add more people into your kingdom today because of your word and your spirit. In our Saviour's name we pray. Amen.